This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following podcast contains grim descriptions of graphic content intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Well, hi, everybody. Hello. My name's Gage. And I'm Ray. And did you click on this episode hoping to hear something relating to scissors or involving scissors? <laughs> well, I tricked you. There are no scissors involved in this case, but trust me when I say it's absolutely fucking awful, yo. <laughs> and hi, you're listening to Gore Report. <laughs> that was a lot. That was a lot, wasn't you're, it? You're in a mood today. <laughs> okay, so you guys, I want to go ahead and apologize. Like, there are some uh, beginning notes I want to give. I woke up today, and my nose <laughs> is so stuffed. My head is so stuffed up that, like, I just can hardly, like, function. Like, oh. I've been sneezing violently all day. Like, I dead-ass sneezed. I sneezed so hard that my nose bled. Like, who does that? <laughs> who fucking that, does that? How is that even possible? <laughs> it hurt. And you know, it's been a thing. I've been sneezing a lot. And uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm dealing with sorry that. sorry for laughing at you all day. <laughs> I love it. I, would, I wouldn't want it any other way. I'd be laughing at your ass, too, if it was you. But uh, yeah, you guys, if I sound like a little nasally today, I'm so sorry. I'm going to try my best to get through it. I'm dealing with congestion. But I was, you know, not going to not give you today's episode. Did I say that right? right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're good there. You got what I meant. You got what I meant. <laughs> because we kind of miss saying it because of my ridiculous intro. Uh, if you're new here, welcome. And we hope you're having a good day and a good week. And, and a, a good, good life. <laughs> We always hope you're having a good life. I totally <laughs> forgot to say that, and that's like our note. We that's always a little thing. We always have to tell you guys that we hope you're having a good day and a good life because we love ya. Yes, we love you. As long as you consent to it, anyways, because consent is important. <laughs> <laughs> so there really isn't a whole lot to unpack today. I just wanted to tell you about my abnormally stuffy nose because I'm probably going to sound a little squid wordy. <laughs> and I'm sorry for that, but uh, uh, I actually Squidward. I actually do have a quick announcement before we dive into the case this week. This was actually a suggestion. This case from one of our listeners. Okay, uh, her name is Saga Aurora. Ooh, and I, I know isn't that name beautiful? Beautiful. I'm really hoping I didn't mispronounce it. She told me that it was a Swedish name. Oh, so if I'm saying that wrong, I'm so sorry. But uh, yeah, she reached out to me and recommended I do this case, and it's one that I hadn't heard of. 
And wow, bitch, wow. <laughs> it's bad. It's just really, really bad. Oh, man. On a number of levels and oh, a number of no. ways. Like, this is this is definitely going to be one of those. Okay. And I put emphasis on one of those. Well, I'm ready. You're ready? <laughs> I'm ready. I'm so, so excited for today's case. For my episode this week, I'm going to be telling you all the case of Linda and Charlotte Mulhall. They are also dubbed the Scissor Sisters. That is intense. terrifying. It's intense. Okay. This case is also the first case that I've covered that's like international. Like this is not nice. an American case. Okay. Like I know when you covered Tim McLean, he was Canadian and that was a Canadian case. But this is actually an Irish case that's going to take us all the way to Ireland. Nice. And it is fucking crazy the murder that was committed by linda and charlotte has been deemed one of the most gruesome most vicious murders in the history of ireland and by the end of this episode you will definitely see why it was given such a title like for sure okay <laughs> for sure get something for your anxiety because it's uh it's bad this case is just crazy to me. Like, it, it's not only brutal, but it's very sad. Okay. I think it's very, very sad. It's it's definitely one of the cases that really invite you to have these multiple different pathways of thinking and analysis. There's just the vastness of the gray area with this one is just... A lot. It's endless. It's like a very bad, very shitty, sad <laughs> onion. There's just a lot of layers. <laughs> And it doesn't stop, you know? It's just fucking awful. Oh, no. I can safely say that it broke my brain more than a little bit, so... Grab the snacks, buckle in. And if you're ready to trek some horribly dark path with us, then uh, buckle the fuck in. It's really bad. Bad, bad, bad. So, to start this story off, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of background information on both Linda and Charlotte Mohall. What little information I could find, anyway. Okay. I could not find their exact birth dates, which is, like, kind of crazy that I don't really? have that, but I couldn't find their dates. I mean, I found that Linda was born in 1975 and Charlotte was born in 1984, but I couldn't find the days that they were born. Wow. And I put in real effort to find it. So if any of you guys, like if I overlooked that somewhere and any of you know how old these women actually are, I would love to know. But yeah, Linda was born in 1975 and Charlotte was born in 1984. Okay. Charlotte and Linda also had two brothers, James Mulhall who was the oldest of the four kids, and John Mulhall. So it was Linda, Charlotte, John, and James. I don't know why Mulhall sounds so familiar to me. I've never heard of the case, but like... I wouldn't be surprised if maybe you had seen of it or read of it somewhere, like in name, maybe. Because okay. it's really, really like a big one. Like okay. it gained a lot of attention. It's very, very, very well known. Both James and John would actually both be incarcerated at the time that Charlotte and Linda did what they did. Like, they were both incarcerated at Wheatfield Prison. Couldn't find exactly what James did that landed him there. I just know that at the time of, you know, the murder that Charlotte and Linda committed, he was serving a three-year sentence okay. for something. John, however, he was in prison for a count of being a passenger in a stolen car that was located in a city called Cork. Okay. Like Cork in Ireland. Cork? C-O-R-K? Yes. 
Oh, wow. Like Cork, yeah. (laughs) Gotcha. Back to the early life of the girls. They were both born in Dublin, Ireland. Mm -hmm. And from everything that I could find, the girls grew up in a very, like, extremely abusive household. Like, there was, like, a lot going on. From a very young age, both Linda and Charlotte were exposed to alcoholism, drug use, um, emotional abuse, physical abuse at the hands of their father. He was particularly violent toward uh, his wife, you know, uh, Kathleen Mulhall, that's Charlotte and Linda's mom. He was just really, 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 really violent. And he was not only violent with his wife, but also his daughters as well. The entire household was just ravaged with heavy drinking substances such as heroin, crystal meth, like all of it. Linda and Charlotte did not in any way have a happy or stable home life. It's actually really sad to think about. Both Linda and Charlotte actually started drinking extremely heavily and using heroin when they were only teenagers. Oh, my God. Yeah. At one point, Linda described in her own words that she would go through three bottles of vodka a day by herself. And that was just casual at home, chilling, you know, like that kind of thing was so available and so open within the household that that's like really all that they knew to do. It's all they did. Yeah. And it was how they coped with the also existing abuse and other areas that they went through every day at the hands of their father. Like the the home image is just there's just so much violence, so much drug abuse, so much alcoholism. Excuse me. It's just it's it's a lot. Like these girls had a very troubled, very difficult upbringing. It's really, really sad. And I think what makes me the most sad about it is with that whole image I just painted for you. It's like what we're seeing is a continuation of a generational curse. Yeah. Like Linda and Charlotte's. Yeah. Linda and Charlotte's mother, Kathleen, she also grew up in that kind of environment at the hands of her parents. She follows suit to those same issues and abuses. And then she goes and has kids of her own. And then she recreates that situation all over again, not only for herself, but for her daughters. It's just. Like, it's sad, you know, that trauma and that sheer weight of recycled abuse is so strong here. It is so evident. And it's, it's just one of those things that make me the most sad when I think about it, you know, like, it's a real problem that happens so much today. And we see it so much today. It's just, it's one of those really hideous stains of society. And it's more often than what people would like to think. A lot more often than what people think. And it's just one of those really nasty stains like i said of society and it's sad and this whole image of their early life growing up it was just in the throes of this yeah because like entirely their reality like if they grow up in an environment where they see this all the time it becomes the new normal exactly and that's pretty much what happened just like kathleen followed her parents charlotte and linda started following their mother to the depths of addiction abuse violence you know it just it's sad it's really really sad now i can say that as linda and charlotte got older they actually maintained a very strong bond with their mother okay regardless of how they were brought up linda and charlotte never held a grudge towards their mom like none of that i was just about to ask if it was like trauma bond or what well both the girls were really extremely close to kathleen they kind of had this It was more like a best friendship type of closeness versus mother-to-daughter closeness, if that makes sense. But they maintained a really, really, really strong bond. Linda and Charlotte very much loved their mother and never really held any of, you know, what their life was like growing up. They never held that against Kathleen. Okay. Now, 
Linda, she would eventually go on to have four children of her own. She had also gotten into a very dysfunctional, highly toxic relationship herself. Uh. And after she had her fourth child, Linda would actually separate from this uh, boyfriend. I don't know if it was a boyfriend or if she actually married. I couldn't find, like, for sure. Gotcha. And if I don't know something for a fact, I won't say it. But she separated from her partner, and then she became a single mother. And Linda, from all accounts, was an amazing mother. She was described as being extremely loving towards and extremely protective of her children. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, and the people that knew Linda said that she did her very best just to be the best mom that she could be in spite of her circumstances. Trying to break those generational curses. Trying. There was definitely some effort there. Linda was allegedly, and I say allegedly because I'm not Linda and I can't speak for her, but there were only positive things said in regard to her parenting. Nice. Before the story starts nearing towards the events of what happened in today's case, I'm going to introduce you to a man named Farah Swale Noor. He was a Kenyan man that would later get romantically involved with Kathleen Mulhall. And he is also the man that gets brutally ripped to pieces by both Linda and Charlotte. So I ran into a little bit of a dead end. Not entirely a dead end, but I did run into a bit of an obstacle when it came to trying to find a lot of early background information on Farah Noor and how he grew up and how his childhood was like. Mm -hmm. I couldn't really find a lot of that, but I have compiled what I could find to give you the best uh, synopsis, if I will, of who he was as a person and kind of a glimpse into what his life was like. So I'm going to give you what I have. Okay. Just like with Charlotte and Linda, I also couldn't find Farah's exact birthday. I just know he was born in 1967. Okay. And he lived most of his life in Kenya. Farah had actually first moved to Ireland in 1996. And when he got to Ireland, he was claiming that he had traveled from a war-infested part of Somalia after his wife and children had been killed. Oh. Yeah. Which it would later be discovered that that was a lie because Farah was actually from Kenya and not Somalia. And his wife and kids were still very much alive back home. What? Why? Farah had just abandoned all of them to just up and start a new life in Ireland. Oh, you bastard. And this wasn't his first attempt in leaving Kenya to go to Ireland either. In 1993, Farah had paid human traffickers to get him out of Kenya, but obviously that attempt was unsuccessful because he actually didn't make it out successfully until, as I just said, in 1996 when he finally made it to Ireland. And after it was discovered that he was lying about where he had came from, the Department of Justice, Equality, and Law Reform ordered that he be deported back to Kenya, but he ended up appealing the order, and he was ultimately granted Irish citizenship in March of 1999. Wow. Now. Okay, that's a lot. It also gives a little bit of his character. And that's only going to get worse. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm I'm not a fan. I am just not a fan of this shady character. Right, right. Now, before I really get into explaining in more detail the kind of person that Pharaoh was, I want to go ahead and say that, <laughs> yes, he was a complete piece of shit. I'm sure you've gathered that when I said he abandoned his wife and children in Kenya. Like, I'm just pointing it out now that he was an awful person. However, 
Am I saying that him being an awful individual justifies him being murdered? Absolutely fucking not. We do not victim blame here. I just want to state that before I go any further, because the last thing that I want is for anyone to listen to this and think that I'm describing Farah in a certain light to make it seem as if I'm saying, well, yeah, you piece of shit. Like, you deserved it. Like, you know, basically me saying that he deserved what happened to him. And that's totally okay. It's totally not it. Like, there is some extremely deep gray area with this case as a whole. There will be room for discussion, you know, later in the episode. But, yeah, I'm just... I just want it to be known. I'm not subjecting Farah to my own bias. I'm literally just telling you guys the facts. And the facts are that Farah was an extremely shitty human being. And oh, that's just God. that on that. Oh, God. No. <laughs> not nice. No, 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 no. It is definitely not nice. Oh. He is not nice. He's not a nice guy. He's not a nice guy. Farah uh-uh. was an extremely violent individual. And I put an emphasis on that, extremely violent. He was incredibly abusive to all of his partners in every way that you could possibly imagine, mentally, physically, verbally, like all of it. He also had really intense problems with alcoholism and drug usage, and these things would only make his violent temperament even more extreme. Like, he was 100% definitely the type of guy that would drink or get high and then he'd go on a rampage and beat the living shit out of his girlfriend brutally he 100 percent viewed and treated women as nothing more than objects he didn't even consider women to be human beings and that's very evident and how he treated them which you know it's some sickening shit to me it's pretty enraging it goes this case gets really dark really quickly i'm sorry for staring at you but the rage the the vibe that is going on in my head right now yeah no it's bad (sighs) that's why i really had to give that pre-note that i'm not trying to subject this person to my own you know my own bias i think he's a complete piece of shit and he is a complete sack of shit i'm not saying that justifies him being killed but he was a fucking monster of a person he truly was yeah yeah wow Outside of his violent, violent Mm. tendencies, Farah also had some pretty extreme sexual deviances that often tied into his, you know, violent personality. It kind of went hand in hand. (sighs) And he also had a bit of a past with being with way younger women than him, more specifically teenagers. You know who this reminds me of? The Ripper Crew. Yeah. Yeah. The Ripper Crew. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. I can see it. It's it's weird. It's fucking weird. There is a Why is there this connection between violence and sex that just, you know, some of these killers they're just There's more than one answer for that, unfortunately. Farah had this thing about being with way younger women as I said, teenagers actually. Yeah. He had gotten not one, but two 16-year-old girls pregnant during the course of having extremely violent and horribly abusive relationships with the both of them. Oh, hell no. And one of those 16-year-old girls, she had special needs. Oh, fuck no. So Farah completely took advantage of these girls. He abused the shit out of them, impregnated them, and then he fucking dipped. Again, piece of shit. 
absolute piece of shit. I am very slowly starting to retract my statement about him not deserving it. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> just going to hey, be real. This case, it'll take you there. It's going to take I'm you there. I'm just going to be real. Trust me, because... we're going to have plenty of room for some discussion when we discuss exactly what happened. But, I mean, it's a lot, and it goes there. Oh, God. I'm going to give a little bit of a trigger warning again to all of you listening. If you haven't gathered it by what I just said, this case is going to go there. This one's definitely not nice. It's not fun. If any of this is way too much for you at any point, we urge you to just please listen to a uh, less traumatizing episode of yes, ours. Please, please, <laughs> and, uh, please keep yeah. an eye on your mental health. Yeah, we care about that kind of thing. We do not expect you guys to listen to some, you know, to something that really makes you uncomfortable. We never want that. So I'm just going to, you know, I'm given that now that it's only going to go downhill from here. And I mean downhill, bitch. Gage, downhill. I'm scared. We're going to be descending. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm fully uncomfortable. I don't have any snacks right now. But I do have this cup of water over here. So I'm just going <laughs> to... Buckle in with the rest of you guys because I, ooh, I don't know if I can handle this. I don't know if I can handle this today, boss. You make you making me silly. You better stop. So, to go along with Ferris' personality, he also had an extremely strong fascination with knives. He would collect them, carry them around, like he just he just loved knives. And I wouldn't be surprised if he attacked his partners with them, if I'm being completely honest, because I don't hey, I don't know if he did, but I do know that he was extremely physically violent, and it's not really out of left field to see, I don't know, him doing some shit like that as a possibility. I don't think that's unreasonable, you know? Yeah. But throughout the course of his life, quite a few affairs partners got uh, what's called a barring order placed against him and a barring order essentially is the equivalent of a restraining order. Okay. So yeah, he was one very violent, very sadistic motherfucker. A hundred percent. Now, Farah had became involved with Kathleen Mulhall in 2003. Mm-hmm. He had been living in Ireland for seven years at that time. Okay. And when Kathleen met Farah, she was still married to her husband, a man named John and even though she was still married and had a home with this person and her two daughters, Charlotte and Linda, this didn't really stop her from becoming extremely smitten with Farah. She got sucked in pretty quickly within a few weeks of them meeting. It wasn't long until they were in a full-fledged, full-time relationship with one another. And that's a really scary note to make, too, because you know how it is, that cycle of an extremely violent abuser and that whole process of how they target a victim and then reel a victim in and then trap their victim. The love bombing. Yeah. It's a very fast, very intense kind of process, you know, and this is exactly what's happened here. And it, it just makes me sad. I know I say that all the time, but this one just, it makes me sad. It didn't take long for Farah to show his true colors. It's really, 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 really bad. Kathleen would yeah, well, actually normally they um abusers normally can't sustain that mask 
but for so long. So there, there's a there's a cycle. There's a literal cycle to yeah. it. There's a whole process. Kathleen would actually go on to move Farah into the family home, like where she lived with John. What? Yes, and this caused a very severe riff in Kathleen's family, as you can imagine. Okay. It. <laughs> Do yeah. you think? It caused a lot of tension to build up between Kathleen and her children. John ended up moving out because of all of this. And I mean, it, w- it was a shit show. Like, it was a shit oh show. Oh, my God. This definitely wasn't the happiest time for this family. Like, I seriously couldn't imagine the divide that happened with this home, you know? Like, I I just can't. There's when gonna... things like that happen, you literally feel the split, like, in your chest. You yeah. literally... Yes, and with this case, you're going to encounter several, several situations that, at least speaking on behalf of me personally, I could not goddamn imagine being in. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to say that. You're going to encounter multiple of them, or at least I sure as hell did. (laughs) (laughs) Farah went on to live in Kathleen's home for a short amount of time before him and Kathleen both moved out and went to that city I mentioned earlier, Cork. Okay. Which Cork is a fairly large city located in the southwest region of Ireland, more specifically within the district of Munster. Okay. If I'm saying that right, I'm sorry if I'm butchering that. But yeah, Kathleen and Farah had went to Cork in hopes of creating a new life together. And after they left the family home, John actually moved back in and he kind of became he became like the mainstay of the house basically. Okay. So this relationship, just like all of Farah's past relationships, it was dangerously violent. Oh, man. And I'm going to give a little trigger warning, too. I'm about to mention some really intense shit, you guys. Again, I don't mean to be annoying about it, but if you don't want to hear it the minute that you hear that it's too much for you, by all means, listen to something else. But Farah would rape Kathleen on a number of occasions during their time together. And there were several instances where Kathleen had been hospitalized because of how severely she had been beaten by Farah. Kathleen suffered multiple broken ribs, broken wrists, even broken fingers, all on separate occasions. As in, she would be hospitalized for repeated injuries, meaning that Farah would literally send her to the hospital for breaking her ribs. She would go home, and then he would break her ribs again and send her back. Like, again, fuck off, dude. There are several medical records of Kathleen having to be hospitalized over and over because of how severely she was being fucking beat by him. And that is, oh my God. You just, you can't overlook it. You can't overlook okay, it. That's everybody why. Everybody, <laughs> big exhale. <sighs> and now you see why I gave that little pre note. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm going to give many pre notes as we get through this because it's not good. It's really, really not good. So Kathleen had literally been trapped in this horrifically abusive situation with Farah, and mm. <sighs> it's bad. And this also really affected both Linda and Charlotte because obviously no matter what she's done and what, you know, they were put through at the hands of, they love their mom. Yeah. And they've seen their mom go through this type of thing their whole life. And here it is happening again. I just, I couldn't imagine how Linda and Charlotte felt. I can't speak for them, of course, but 
I can imagine all of this was extremely hard to deal with. Yeah. Along with the trauma that comes with a lifetime of being abused yourself that severely. And then you have addiction and all these other external things to add to it. And then you add that the one person that you look to and love, you're also watching these same things happen to. And there's not really much you can do about it. And I can imagine that's very hopeless. And trying to fathom that really puts me into a pit of sadness, thinking of how these two girls felt seeing their mom go through something this absolutely fucking awful. Yeah. And then also dealing with that same awful shit happening to them. You know, it's just it's just one of those many sad images that I'm going to be painting for us. Yeah, so this case has got to be a little tender. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's like It's like I said, you try to put yourself in the shoes of Linda and Charlotte and... It's really, really hard to do that because of how fucking awful their lives and childhoods are. Yeah. You know, I'm not trying to justify what they did because I'm not doing that. Absolutely not. But it is just a perspective that you have to have with this case. You cannot ignore where and what these two women came from and what they were exposed to. But before I went off on that little tangent, I apologize, you guys. This is definitely one of the cases that sparked conversation for me. But Charlotte and Linda still maintained this very close friendship and connection with their mom, even after she had left to go to Cork with Farah. Okay. And it would be on March 20th, 2005, that both Charlotte and Linda would have plans to meet up with their mother and Farah in the Dublin City Center. And that's exactly what they did. All four of them had plans that day to meet up and hang out. After meeting up, Charlotte was pushing for everyone to kind of go into town. She was wanting Mm -hmm. everyone to kind of do something together, you know. Right. And Linda didn't initially want to go into town to do anything. She just just wasn't really feeling it that day. And eventually, she just kind of said, fuck it. And she gave in to Charlotte. And the whole gang, (laughs) Scooby-Doo. (laughs) Scooby-Dooby-Doo. They all decided to head into town. Charlotte had convinced everyone. But they didn't go to like a bar or like a restaurant or something like that. Instead, they all went to a liquor store and they purchased a few bottles of vodka. And then they went out and bought a couple of grams of cocaine. And then they decided just to go street drinking. <laughs> yeah, that um, like <clears throat> sounds like a party. No, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were lit. Like they were cocaine out Cocaine is a stimulant, Sniffany. <laughs> Absolutely. They were out in public, just walking around, chilling, drinking, mixing drinks, doing Man. lines. Like they were in it. They were skiing. They were, yes. <laughs> they were skiing. So the day drinking started on O'Connell Street in the center of the city. And after spending some time there, the group then heads down to a local boardwalk. And this is where Linda and Charlotte both bust out some ecstasy tablets. Oh, my God. Again, they were getting litty. <laughs> you know, like they were they were going, you know. Litty in the city. Litty in the city. <laughs> like, goodness gracious. So both Linda and Charlotte, they take their ecstasy tabs. And then they go and make them another drink. And Kathleen, their mom... She decides that she wants to take one of these tabs as well. So she asks Linda for one, and then she takes it. Now, Farah was obviously still with them, and Mm -hmm. they all hung out on this boardwalk for a short time after taking their ecstasy. And then the group decides to take their drugs and alcohol back to where Kathleen and Farah were living. And then they were going to, you know, 
go home for the night, but continue the activities. You right. Know? So on the way back to the house, Linda and the rest of the crew run into a couple of people that they know. They're just chit-chatting, drinking. It was a couple of hours after the plan of action was decided that the four of them would actually arrive back at the flat. This next part, unfortunately, I don't really have much of a segue Mm -hmm. to you listening to, to everybody tuning in right now. We are definitely about to just dive into what happened, okay. what Charlotte and Linda did, and what caused it. You guys get it by now. It's rough. It's yeah. really, really rough. So I'm just letting you guys know now we are going straight down the slope into the nitty of the nitty gritty. Okay. When Kathleen, Farah, Linda, and Charlotte all got back to the flat that night, Things started to get very nasty very quickly. Obviously, the drinking had continued once they got back. Three of the four people were also on ecstasy. And at some point, Kathleen decided to crush up some ecstasy into Farrah's drink. Okay. I'm guessing she wanted, I don't know, him to be on the same, like, wavelength as everyone else. I'm not really sure. But regardless, she did spike his drink with ecstasy and gave it to him. And he drank it. And it wasn't long after that that the real turning point in the story happens. Farah started coming on to Linda. Like, blatantly in front of her mother, who, let me remind you, is Farah's partner. And yeah, he just slowly but surely starts coming on to Linda. And he starts getting a little more aggressive and aggressive with it. And Linda, she's trying her best to not, you know, have conflict with Farrah. She's ignoring him, trying to pretend like it's not happening. But Charlotte, on the other hand, she started getting angry about the situation very quickly. And she started telling Farrah, you know, hey, stop touching my fucking sister. Right. So Charlotte is getting heated very quickly about it. But Farrah didn't listen to Charlotte. He was only getting more and more aggressive with Linda. He kept trying to put his arms around her to, like, grab her. He's touching her hair and all kinds of other weird, gross shit. And it eventually reaches a point to where Linda just can't take it anymore. And then she actually snaps back on him and is like, actually, like, stop fucking touching me. Right. Like, we've told you to stop, stop. In response to this, Farah then scoots super close to Linda. He grabs her head and whispers in her ear about how they're, quote, children of the night and how she was just like her mother. Then Farah full on tries to not only subdue, but he tries to rape Linda right there on the couch in front of Charlotte and their mother, everything. So, fuck. Yes, it got like he snapped. He completely snapped. So Kathleen she immediately tries to attack Farah to get him off of Linda. Mm-hmm. And this causes Farah to swing around and start throwing punches. He started violently beating her, essentially. Okay. So Kathleen then starts screaming at her daughters, please help me. He's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. So this is when Charlotte grabs a box cutter and she jumps on Farah's back and slits his throat open. Mm. Charlotte then began stabbing Farah repeatedly. And this kind of made Farah stumble down the hall a bit. 
He was like trying to stand up. He eventually stumbled into one of the back bedrooms of the flat. And when he got there, he tripped and he hit his head on the corner of the bed that was in the room. And he fell to the floor unconscious. Okay. Charlotte and Linda followed behind Farah. And when he fell to the ground, they fully unleashed their rage. Linda grabbed a hammer and started bashing Farah's skull in like repeated blows to his skull with a goddamn hammer. It is also said that Linda hit Farah with so much force with this hammer that indentions were made in the floor around and beneath Farah's skull. Oh, wow. Like she had bashed parts of the floor in. Okay, pause. Decompartmentalize people. <laughs> Take a deep breath with me. Just... <laughs> Because that got very heavy, and I'm just in the driver's seat like, <laughs> Yeah, I'm telling you, it is yeah. it is savage. Okay. So, come on, come on. We've, <laughs> we have already established that we cover some gruesome shit on this show. <laughs> Let me remind you about all the other cases that we have covered that is right. just as bad as this. You're really trying to talk yourself up right now, aren't you? <laughs> I am not okay. I am not okay. But yeah, that's that's a little fact for what I just said. It blows my mind. Linda beat Farrah's skull in so violently with a hammer that she beat the goddamn floor in. Mm. That is, like, the utmost violent. Like, it is absolutely insane. And the entire time that Linda is bashing Farrah's skull in, Charlotte was continuously stabbing him with a bread knife that she went and grabbed before her and Linda went to the back bedroom to follow him. She stabbed him a total of 22 times during this part of the attack, and the stab wounds were so violent and so deep that Farrah had a completely severed kidney... As well as two punctured lungs. Wow. Farah died in just a matter of minutes after he had fallen in that bedroom. And his last words were, quote, Katie, end quote. And Katie was the pet name that he used for Kathleen. Wow. After Farah died, Linda and Charlotte then decided to drag Farah's body into the bathroom. And they're kind of faced with the decision now. They either have to turn themselves in or they could try to get away with it. And they decided to try to get away with it. Right. After Farah's body had been placed in the bathtub, Linda and Charlotte decided that they were going to dismember him. And the thing that is absolutely so savage about this shit, Ray, is that Linda and Charlotte dismembered Farah with a hammer and a few knives. Mm. No saw, no crazy tools to make the job easier a goddamn hammer, and a serrated bread knife. Wow. They were removing his limbs, cutting through his muscle and his bone matter with knives. Can you imagine the force, the the stamina, the, the everything that that would take? They sawed him to pieces with fucking bread knives and a hammer. I'm just going to put emphasis on that. Like, oh, what my fucking God. What he didn't count on was the several years of uh, rage that these these two women are holding inside. Yeah. 
You know, when we joke around and we're like, oh, well, you know, I got 36 years of rage just pent up inside of me. Yeah, no, this is a really extreme case of that, I believe. exactly. And we are going to have, to you listening, we're going to have some discussion. I'm totally going to give you my thoughts, but there's just some parts of the story that you have to absorb first, and then I plan for us to have a conversation, like trust and believe. But you're on the wavelength that I am. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. So Charlotte starts off the dismemberment by using a blunt kitchen knife to chop away at Farrah's leg. She's removing tissue and muscle and attempting to saw through his bone again. Linda used a hammer to shatter several of Farrah's bones, his arms, his legs, and several other bones from, you know, throughout his body. Linda also decapitated Farrah with a hammer. What? She used the hammer to dislocate his skull from his spine. Then she essentially ripped his head off after she severed it. Get the fuck out of here. Like, she ripped his head off after she severed and broke his skull attaching to his spine. She crushed his neck, essentially, and then ripped his fucking head off with a hammer. That's so fucking insane. Linda and Charlotte both stayed up all night dismembering him. They were both still very high on drugs, still drinking the whole time as well. And they reached a point to where they were literally taking turns going into the bathroom and sawing up Farrah's body with knives. Like one of the sisters would go in and be dismembering while the other one went and took a few shots and did some drugs and then they would switch. I mean. And they stayed at it all night not only did they remove all of Farah's limbs as well as his head they also sliced his genitals off they removed his genitals wow when linda mulhall was asked later on why Farah's genitals had been so violently removed she responded quote the son of a bitch will never rape my mother or anyone ever again end quote i mean did you not just get goosebumps not sorry yeah i just got fucking goosebumps I got fucking goosebumps. I mean, it got me. That was literally. Did you see that? I just shivered. <laughs> that was literally all she said. That was her response. Yeah. While dismembering Farah, they also drained all of his blood down the shower drain, and they were also sawing off pieces of his meat and trying to flush them into the toilet. So they were trying to dispose of him as they were dismembering him in small pieces as they shattered his bones and got pieces of skin off of him. Wow. Yeah, like I couldn't imagine any of this. It's honestly one of the most savage fucking things I've ever learned about. Like regardless of what reason is behind it, this is fucking savage. Absolutely savage. Oh, yeah. And the entire time that this is all taking place, Kathleen is just in her fucking living room sitting on the couch having a drink. Like, she's just chilling on the couch, turning the fuck up, while her daughters are brutally ripping her boyfriend to pieces in the bathroom. I mean... (laughs) I mean... (laughs) I mean... I mean... (laughs) But even more so, this is where the onion peels a little bit more. And this is where... It just starts making you think. It just starts making you think. So, If the onion peels, am I going to cry? Yes. Oh, okay. I would think so. All right. <laughs> so after Linda decapitated Farah, she said on numerous occasions throughout her admissions that she wrapped his head in a towel to cover his eyes because she couldn't stand to look at his face. 
like she said that it really, really got to her what she had done to him, and she couldn't like look in his eyes. And it's chilling. So what this shows, in my opinion, at least with Linda, more so in the beginning than Charlotte, there was some immediate real remorse. Yeah. There was real remorse. Like, you know, this was not something that Linda wanted to brag about. This was not something that she felt like made her powerful. She was like, I cannot believe me and my sister did this. I absolutely fucking regret it. It almost ruined my life. I think about it all the time. It drives me crazy. I didn't want to look in his face. Like, she displays real remorse over doing it. And that makes you think... You know, a lot of people think with Charlotte and Linda that they're fucking monsters. They were literally deemed the Scissor Sisters because of the severity of the dismemberment. But you look at it and it's like, is it really them being monsters? Or was it an explosion of pent up fucking rage in a moment of them trying to save their mother from possibly being killed by someone that was abusing her? Yeah. Like it gets mic drop. Yeah. You know, mic drop. We can all have a second to like take in how we feel about it. We're we're drawing kind of toward the end, but that's a note. Linda was very very remorseful. She stated in her confession when we get to there that she was not okay. The thing that most survivors of domestic violence don't really talk about is it's not only that it's pent up rage. But when you go through something that is that traumatizing to you, you are going to act in ways that you would never act before in order to survive. You're not living at that point anymore. You're just surviving day to day. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with that. I 100% agree with that. Because you know how... um, that you flight know, or flight response becomes right. very normal. And you will sometimes you will do some really heinous shit in order to survive. So by the morning of the next day, Linda and Charlotte had managed to separate Farah's body into several pieces. Mm. They then called their dad, John, to come help them with the cleanup. So John gets over there, he sees what his daughters have done, and then he freaks the fuck out and he leaves. Like, of course. (laughs) Right. He immediately was like, you know, I don't want anything to do with this. I cannot handle this. He was not with it. But a few hours go by and the women convince their dad to come back and help them dispose of the contents of the flat anyways. They somehow talk him into it. And that's what he does. So John takes all of these like blood soaked linens and a bunch of other shit that's put in bags and he takes them to a location not far from the flat and he disposes of the evidence by dumping it. Oh man, you let them talk you into this. (laughs) This leaves Linda and Charlotte to deal with the task of disposing of Farrah's body parts. Mm. And they decide that they're going to do this by packing his parts into various different sports bags and duffel bags and pretty much whatever else that they can get their hands on. And then Linda, Charlotte, and Kathleen were going to take these bags and carry them to the Royal Canal in Dublin and throw the bags in the water. Yeah. Not exactly the smartest thing that I've ever heard in the world, but that was the plan they came up with. I mean... If they thought it would work. And they had to make several trips 
back and forth from the flat to the canal carrying bags. They, okay, now that's just stupid. They had this man in so many pieces that they were making trips to get duffel bags full of his body parts to throw them into the fucking Royal what Canal, which is a very public place. They did that. They made trips, and they, they damn sure did. They did the damn thing, and the damn, damn thing, thing, was, thing done. was done. Was it well done? No, but no. was it done? Yes. So after dumping all of Farrah's body parts into the Royal Canal, Linda and Charlotte then go back to the flat to clean up the crime scene. They know that the flat where Farrah lives is obviously the first place that the guards are going to come looking for him when right. he's found out that he's missing. And both girls are absolutely also knowing of the fact that they need to not only clean this flat, they need to forensically clean it. Like, they need to get fingerprints, blood, like they're trying to, you know, for yeah. clean, clean it on a forensic level to where there will be no evidence left behind. And keep in mind that they're both fatigued from the night's events. They're still drunk. They're still high. And, and they, trying to clean this place now. But that's the thing. They somehow managed to do it. What? They cleaned this flat. Like, they did a solid job getting rid of the blood and other evidence. And it's crazy to me. It comes into play later in this story. These women did it. Okay, Ireland. I see you. <laughs> now, Linda and Charlotte also knew that if Farah's head and genitals were recovered, okay. that those would be crucial pieces of evidence in terms of identifying him. Because, you know, the teeth, dental records, things like that. So the way that they were going to get around this is that instead of throwing his head and his junk in the canal with the rest of his body, they mm -hmm. actually bagged his head separately and they went to dispose of it separately. They took Farah's bagged head to Sean Walsh Memorial Park to dispose of it. And once they got there, all Linda and Charlotte did was argue about where they were going to bury his head at. Oh, God. They just got into an argument about it. And so Charlotte, she got really fed up with the fighting. And at one point, she just kind of like slung herself on the ground, like on her knees. And she just started digging with her bare hands into the earth. She dug a small hole put the bag containing Farah's head inside of it, and then she attempted to cover it back up with some dirt. And she didn't really do a good job at this because she was arguing and a little distracted. But the top of the bag was literally protruding from the ground, and she had buried it right in front of a park bench. What? So not like, you know, in a more secluded area what? of the park. She put it right in front of a park bench. Like someone that would go sit on that bench would clearly see this weird looking bag sticking out of the ground. How are you going to dig a hole? But then you're not good at digging the hole. You're not good at burying the head. I mean, it's it's a what, question. What shit show? Where is the precision and the creativity from last night to now? <laughs> They lost it. It looks like they lost it. So. Oh, no. Yeah. Linda and Charlotte, they continued to fight and they just left it there. I'm just trying to joke because that's my, that's my coping. That's mechanism. the best coping, coping uh, mechanism you have. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I know how it is. A coping mechanism is needed. I just hear Cat Williams in my head right now. It's like, <laughs> did you know that I can see you? <laughs> but yeah. 
Linda and Charlotte, they continued to fight after this bag was buried and they left it there. And over the next few days, Charlotte and Linda, they would like desperately try to erase what they had done from their minds. Like they were not coping well, especially Linda. Linda was not coping well with it. Mm. They were horrified at what they had done. The stress of it was really building up. Linda, especially, like I said, she was really rampant with anxiety and she couldn't stop thinking about Farah's head being found. She just wasn't doing good. She was falling apart. She knew that the head wasn't buried properly. And she knew that when Farah was identified, that the crime would be tied back directly to them and their mother. Yeah. So all of that being said, the vibe's not likable. The women aren't really <laughs> feeling it. Linda and Charlotte go on a drug and drinking binge to try and numb themselves a little bit. It would be 10 days later after the murder of Farah Swale Noor that a passerby walking down the canal spotted what seemed to be body parts more specifically a severed human leg still wearing a sock floating in the water the body or the body parts were visible in the canal you could see arms and legs and a torso and a buttock section and these were gradually removed from the canal and brought to the morgue for examination So the Royal Canal has a lot of traffic. People walk that route every single day, multiple times a day. It just, like we kind of discussed earlier, it wasn't really the best place to dump a body, right. you know? So several passerbys are walking the canal that day, and a few people report seeing body parts floating in the water. One man in particular kind of hones in a bit because he's initially thinking that maybe these were mannequin parts mm -hmm. that had been thrown into the canal. But no, he notices a human leg complete with a sock still on the foot. And he immediately knows that it's no mannequin. He, he knows that it's human remains. Wow. So he calls the guards and this launches the start of one of the most bizarre murder investigations that Ireland had ever seen. Like this absolutely shocked the fuck out of everyone. Like, literally everyone. This was such a shocking, mind-bending, just, yeah. It was wow. It was almost like a culture shock wow. in a lot of ways. I also want to tell you, as well, this crazy little fact about the case, and it blows my mind a little bit. And it's that when Farah's body was being recovered from the Royal Canal, both Charlotte and Kathleen Mulhall were on the bridge above the canal watching as his body was being recovered from the water below them. Wow. Isn't that wild? They literally ballsy. They literally watched it. This can even be seen on news footage. They are literally like as the news people are covering the canal, you see Charlotte and Kathleen standing on the bridge directly above it, just looking down watching. Holy shit. Crazy as fuck. Crazy Whoa. as fuck. After the body parts are recovered from the canal, they're brought to the morgue to be examined. This body is slowly pieced together, essentially, and due to the effects of the body being in water for so long... Bloating. Farah's skin had started kind of peeling from the bone, and he was bloating, and the water had almost bleached his skin a little bit. So wait, was it coming off the bone, or was it skin slippage? A little bit of both. Okay. 
a little bit of both because not only did he have decomposition and being in the water, but he also had some extremely horrific injuries. Okay. You know, so all of it goes hand in hand. But yeah, his skin had also been lightened and bleached, essentially. And this made authorities think in the very beginning that the victim was a Caucasian male. It That's was all- fucking crazy. Yeah. It was also noticed that the only parts missing from the body were the head and the genitals. And this kind of sent the investigation on a goose chase in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, due to the head and genitals being removed, the authorities immediately thought that this was some type of... Of ritual killing there was actually a separate murder that had taken place nearby in which a young boy's torso was found in a river this case is called the torso in the thames and that crime was suspected to be some sort of ritualistic homicide and it also took place within an african community oh wow. so the authorities saw this body in the canal was missing a head and you know was dismembered so their immediate thought was that this had to be connected in some way that maybe it was ritualistic and that idea stayed a big line of inquiry through the case in the beginning. Like, that's what they were sold yeah. on. And if you remember me bringing up what had happened to Farrah's skin just a second ago from him being in the water, again, the authorities thought that the victim was a Caucasian male at first. They did discover pretty quickly, though, that that wasn't the case. And they came to the conclusion that the victim was an African man with a missing head and missing genitalia. How Farah was officially identified is a little crazy in itself, too. Mm-hmm. So when his torso was recovered, it was found with a soccer jersey. So the media used this jersey to ask the locals if they maybe recognized it. And sure enough, someone came forward. It was one of Farah's friends, and he recognized the jersey as belonging to Farah. Oh, man. So, yeah, this guy, he saw this lead. He put it together in his brain. He was like, wait, that jersey actually looks kind of familiar, and I haven't heard from Pharaoh or seen him in quite a few days. Like, this has to be him. And then this friend also remembered that the very last time he had seen Pharaoh, that he was wearing this exact jersey. Oh. This is all. Yes. Oh, shit. That's how he was identified, because, like, Pharaoh's head was never recovered. Yeah, so no dental records. So this obviously you're not gonna find any fingers in all those body parts. Yeah, I mean this was a huge piece of evidence in the case. It was a breakthrough to have this information. Wow. So the police now suspect who the victim is, but they still have to forensically prove that it was indeed Farinor. You right. know? Like based on the lead they received from Farah's friend, they're obviously pretty convinced that this was him, but if they don't have the forensic evidence to prove it, then there's really nothing that can be done right investigators sought out one of the women that farah had previously had a child with the goal was to do some dna comparison between this child and his mother and farah to see if there was any type of match and when i say farah i mean the body found in the canal yeah when the dna was gathered and examined there was in fact a 50 percent match this child was Definitely a match to the DNA collected from the body parts that were in the canal, and the other 50% of his DNA was matching with his mother. Wow. So this evidence absolutely 100% concluded beyond a shadow of a doubt that this body was in fact the body of Farah Swalenor. Investigators, they find out 
that at the time his body was found in the canal,、mm. that Farah had been living very close by in an area called Richmond Cottages. That's where him and Kathleen had the flat. And they found out through tracing the records back that Farah was living with Kathleen. Oh, God. So, yeah, that was the first lead in terms of a possible suspect. The investigators went to look at the flat that Farah had lived in to see if there was any possible evidence left behind, such as blood splatter, anything really. Right. So, when they inspected this house, one of the first things that's noticed is that a huge section of the carpet was missing, and the flat had also seemed to have been repainted. Painted and redone. Kathleen wasn't even living there anymore by the time the home was investigated. Like this flat had seen two sets of separate tenants since Kathleen lived there. Oh, wow. So, yeah, the chances of the investigators getting any real evidence didn't really look promising. But they had decided to, you know, investigate everything anyway. They ended up using this chemical called luminol. Oh, yeah. Luminol, you know, it's、yeah. that substance. It makes it easier to see like dried up blood or cleaned up blood and like、mm-hmm. stuff like that. This case was actually the very first case in Ireland where luminol was used to investigate a crime scene. Oh, wow. So there's a fun fact for you there. Like, this is this was fucking crazy to everyone. They used the luminol and they found several tiny spots of blood everywhere throughout one of the back bedrooms. And the investigators also made several comments about just how well forensically that the flat was cleaned. Like, it was impressive that these women had cleaned up 90% of all the evidence after doing what they did, as like grotesque and ridiculous as it was. The investigators even like praised it. Like, these girls、That's、damn、so、sure、crazy. did it. The evidence gathered at cottage number 17 in Richmond Cottages. Made it conclusive that the murder had indeed happened there. The, the investigators are starting to really piece a story together, and it's some really damning evidence, all of it collectively. Right. So, as this investigation is continuing, Linda Mulhall, as I said earlier, like six times, she wasn't coping very well with any of this. There's always that one. As I said earlier, she was really, really racked with intense anxiety. Especially over, you know, the place where Farah's head had been buried. If you remembered, she wasn't satisfied with it and she was tripping out about it. Right. So, Linda, in her panic, she goes back to the spot where Farah's head is and she digs it up and takes it to a secluded spot at the base of the Dublin Mountains. And this is where she spends an entire day with his head drinking. Oh, what? Yes. And she got so drunk. That she began talking to his head at one point, like she was crying,、uh, begging Farah to forgive her for what her and her sister had done to him. Oh, wow. Like she completely was on some crazy shit. She was not doing too well with it. Like her conscience was eating her alive. Yeah. Like it was just not good. And there's no telling what happened to Farah's head after she got drunk with it because the head was never recovered. What? Yes. 
the only reason these girls got caught as swiftly as they did, and I say swiftly because it was in a matter of a few months, but the only reason it went that fast was because Linda, on her own volition, had agreed to talk to the police. Like, yeah. she came forth to the authorities. Yeah. Linda, as I said, she came forward as she agreed to speak with the police. She was dealing with an incredibly heavy conscience about the whole thing. She wasn't eating. She wasn't sleeping. She was just binging drugs, drinking like she was spiraling severely. Mm. She just wasn't doing good. Linda would even go on to try and commit suicide via slashing her wrists shortly after her first interview. And she was hospitalized for Damn. this. Like, it is intense. Like, it was it was breaking her. It was breaking her. Two days after she was hospitalized for trying to commit suicide, she was released from the hospital. And she immediately went to authorities and she confessed everything. Damn. Every little detail about what had taken place in her mother's flat on March 20th. Linda completely broke down during her confession, and uh, the following audio clip that I'm going to play for you is from an officer named Christy Mangan. Uh I'm sorry if I'm butchering that. I think I have it right, though, but he's a chief superintendent of the Gardee, and he was present when Linda confessed. It was very emotional because she cried, and she, she was very sincere. I think she realized the enormity of what she had done. She said that the smell that she got when they were cutting up the remains was still in her mind, in her nostrils. She couldn't get away from the fact of what she did, and she realized that she had committed a terrible deed. Uh, Very emotional, going through the exact details of Charlotte stabbing uh, Farah in the neck with a knife, and the fact that she got a hammer and hit him a large number of times. After this confession, Charlotte was brought in for questioning, and she denied everything at first. Oh, shit. She okay. was saying that Linda had made the whole story up. Charlotte was telling the police that it was actually their mother who had murdered Farah, not her and her sister. And I guess Charlotte had this approach because she was trying to, like, maybe protect her sister in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, she was trying to say, you know, like, actually, our mom did this. It wasn't us, you know. She was trying to take that route, but... Linda had just confessed too much. Linda had given them too much information. So after only a little bit of arguing, she kind of realized that the gig was up and that she had been caught. Like I said, Linda had given a full confession. The evidence that was collected supported the narrative of her confession. Like Mm. it was, it was up. So Charlotte ended up also giving a full confession and it was completely matching and supporting of what Linda had told. Now, get this shit. This is going to enrage the fuck out of you because this enrages the fuck out of me. Okay. After the murder, Mm -hmm. after Charlotte and Linda kill Farah, their mother dips the fuck out of Ireland, flees to the UK, and drops all contact with her daughters. What the fuck? And leaves them to basically pick up the pieces and figure out what the fuck to do. It was not long after Farah's body was recovered in the canal. That she fled. That's enraging. Yeah, considering that I don't know the reason that uh, Charlotte and Linda jumped on Farah was to, I don't know, save their mother because right. she begged them for help. Yeah. And it's just like, how do you leave them? And not only this situation, but keep in mind that Linda and Charlotte had grown up in such a horrible fucking environment. But even through that, they loved their mom. And at least had some shred of respect and decency for her. And they were there for her and maintained a connection with her. But no, 
their mother's going to get them to do her dirty work. And then she's going to say, oh, well, you know, fuck y'all. And then dip out. That yeah, enrages the fuck out of me. So <sighs> when this shit went down and Pharaoh's body was recovered and it got tied back to them, they were by themselves. Their mother had dipped. Damn. So both Linda and Charlotte Mulhall were charged with murder, and they were both initially entering a plea of not guilty. Their trials officially began in October of 2006, and Linda actually didn't even show up to her first day of trial. She was terrified. The officer that I mentioned earlier, Christopher Mangan, he had to go track her down. And he convinced her and pleaded with her to come to court and get it over with. And eventually she did. You know, she was in an extremely dark place. She was worried about her children because remember, Linda was a mother of four. You know, she was worried about how their well-being would be affected by all of this. The case was gaining national attention like she was just not doing good. She was really, really having a hard time trying to stomach what was to come. Right. Regardless, she eventually did come back to the court And it took the jury days on both trials, both Linda and Charlotte's trials. It took days for a verdict to be reached for each of the Mulhall sisters. Wow. Yeah. So Linda's charge was reduced to one count of manslaughter. So her charge was reduced from murder to manslaughter, and she was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Manslaughter for all of that. Can you imagine? Well, I believe that Linda's charge was reduced due to how she had been cooperative with the police and told them so much and confessed. But Charlotte didn't do any of that. So her charge didn't get reduced. Charlotte was still charged with murder and given a mandatory life sentence. Both women were then sent to Mountjoy Women's Prison located in Dublin. Also, not long before Charlotte and Linda were sentenced, like in the middle of their trial, Mm -hmm. their father, John, had actually committed suicide due to the pressure of what had happened. Wow. He wrote a suicide note addressed to one of his daughters saying that he simply could not cope with what Linda and Charlotte had done, and he was found dead. I don't know exactly how he killed himself, but he committed suicide because of this. That is insane. And the judge that conducted Linda's and Charlotte's trials said, quote, This is absolutely the most violent, the most gruesome killing that has ever occurred during my professional career, end quote. Later in 2008, so two years after the trials of both Linda and Charlotte, Mm. Kathleen brought her ass back to Ireland. And oh, she was convenient. charged. Yeah. Well, she knew that she was going to be like extradited or yeah. expedited. I don't know which word. I think I'm using the wrong word. Who knows? But she was basically <laughs> going to be forced to go back to face charges. So she just went ahead and went back to Ireland to get it over with. And she didn't get like a full murder charge, but she was sentenced to five years in prison. And then she was sent to the same prison that her daughters were in, Mountjoy. Oh. Now get this. Kathleen never once took up for her daughters at any point in time during any interview or anything that was ever asked of her. She never took up for her daughters or brought up any of the point of they did this trying to protect her. Yeah. Like, she never brought that up. She was like, what a bitch at the end of that. That's what she did. This this case, yeah, this case, like I said, it gained national attention over the span of time that it took place. It was heavily publicized. People all through Ireland and all over the world were just fucking shocked at the savagery of this crime that, that these two sisters, these two women had done this. 
the media would go on to name Linda and Charlotte Mulhall the Scissor Sisters due to the severity and the gruesomeness of their dismemberment. And for the record, they both hate that name, by the way. Like, to this day, they both fucking hate being called the Scissor Sisters because they say it portrays them as monsters, and that's not exactly how they feel about the situation. Yeah. So Linda Mulhall... She would be released from prison in 2018 after only serving a little over 12 of the 15 years that she was sentenced. Charlotte is still incarcerated to this day. So oh, one wow. of them is out. Linda's out, but Charlotte's not. Wow. And now that's that's that little debate here at the end of this case. Were Charlotte and Linda Mulhall monsters or were they a little, you know, were they victims in their own right? And this, you know, whole case being a very unfortunately timed example of explosion. I mean... Because there are some real, real layers here. Like, some extremely real layers yeah. here. They were they were definitely victims themselves. Like, you yes. can't discredit what they went through just because of what they did. Because, you know, I myself have been in a situation, you know, when you get to that point... You do think about it. You're like, you yeah. know, am I going to make this decision? It could change the rest of my life. And, and again, you know, you're right, but it 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 also doesn't make it right. Like we are no, not saying not right. we are not saying that this murder was justified. I and right conscience cannot say that. The thing is is that there are two different pathways. You can either make the decision to do it or you can make the decision to walk away from it. And yes. some people just can't handle being put in these situations and they snap and they yeah it, their decision making is not there no. it's very erratic and spontaneous very and, driven by emotion passion driven yeah because you have to think about like a lot of people in my research of this case you encounter so many people just really talking about how evil Linda and Charlotte are and how, you know, ridiculous, how ridiculously evil, you know, the murder was. I'm like, I get that. But at the same time, like, ask yourself if your mother or someone that was really close to you was being violently attacked in this way and screamed for your help, mm -hmm. what would you do? What would you feel the need to do? Like, we can't ultimately, like, I can't say what I would do in that situation because obviously talking about a situation metaphorically versus actually being in it is two totally different things. But I can tell you what I would want to do right. and what my heart tells me that I would want to right. do. So there's some layers here and you look at this really heavy recycled abuse that is in the family with Linda and Charlotte from a young age and how they really knew nothing else. Kathleen was subjected to, really harsh violence most of her life, if right. not all of her life. Linda and Charlotte fall suit into these same issues, same abuses, mm -hmm. same substance problems, same everything. And then they have to watch their mom go back into that, if not only delve worse into it or get worse bits of it. Like as her relationships got more and more violent leading up to when she got with Farah, and then that was like the climax yeah. of it. Yeah, exactly. So there's just some real layers here. Personally, yeah. Personally, I don't think they're monsters. I know to you listening, if you have a different opinion, by all means, have your different opinion. 
we are inviting free conversation. I just, at the end of researching this, I truly think this is a case that's really telling of a bigger problem that we have in society and that mm -hmm. we face as humans. I think that's the bigger issue here. I don't think it's a matter of these girls being monsters because they're not. Like, for crying out loud, you look at the sheer amount of remorse that at least Linda had. Yeah. I can't speak on behalf of Charlotte, but you know, this this tore her up. She was not proud of this. Yeah. She was not proud of this. This was not one of those killings where the killer brags and is happy and is super fucking sadistic and emotionless. Like this really is an example of an explosion that led to immediate regret and guilt and remorse and sadness. And I mean, it's it all rolled up bending. like a burrito. You it's know? absolutely mind-bending to me. It is absolutely mind-bending. I just, at the end of this, I honestly don't know what I think. I think this case was absolutely ridiculous to research. I want to give another thank you to Saga Aurora for reaching out to me and uh, giving me this case to look into. Like, girl, you fucked me up. <laughs> and I appreciate you giving me this case. At the end of it, I can really only say that is Farah a victim on the base that he was murdered? Yes. I can't say that he's not a victim, obviously. But were Charlotte and Linda Mulhall also victims? Abso-fucking-lutely. And after a somewhat tangent-filled ending to that episode, yeah. that concludes the case of Charlotte and Linda Mulhall, the Scissor Sisters. I mean, I was uncomfortable through a lot of it, but in the same vein... Isn't it a fascinating case, though? It really is. Like, it really, really makes you think. You can really um, not only even cover the nature versus nurture argument here. Oh, hardcore. 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 Um, but also... You could go to town with that if you wanted right, to. Right, but also the psychology behind what makes people kill someone else. Uh, I'm. It's just mind-bending, it was a very awesome, exciting, like, case. Was the damn thing done? You did the damn thing, and the damn thing is done, and <laughs> I want to be done with this one. Like, done, done. <laughs> like, done. I want to be finished. I want to be finished. So, on that note, everybody, we hope that you enjoyed our case, slash maybe not even really enjoyed it because it was pretty awful. But yeah, we loved being here as always. If you want to follow me and Ray and all of our weird, well, you can <laughs> definitely do that. Find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram at Gore Report Podcast. And on Twitter at Gore Report. <laughs> and uh yeah on that note we, we are love going you guys. we love you we're gonna go chill do anything we can to get this stay awful shit off of out our there. minds stay safe out there stay safe we're gonna get the fuck off of here bye, bye. <laughs>